Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. How many of you all this uh, last week saw through television the funeral of... um, Former President Richard Nixon. Let me just see your hands. Wow. Quite a number of you all. That was, for those of us over 30, somewhat of a nostalgic occasion. Uh, It brought back for me a a poignant moment when, uh, in 1969, after uh, we had lost the national championship to the University of Texas in football, I had the privilege of being in this little locker room where President Nixon and Billy Graham, Henry Kissinger, and others who had been there to present the national champion trophy to Texas, not us, but they came over to offer condolences. But I can remember being there, visiting and speaking with what was then the most powerful man on the face of the earth. And that caused me to flash back to that moment as I thought about uh, him during the uh, funeral, which was a very moving ceremony. And as you saw in attendance were four former presidents, Gerald Ford and uh, Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter and George Bush, and of course, our sitting president, Bill Clinton, there they were all together, side by side for a moment, all their ideological differences uh, put aside, sitting for this uh, recognition of this uh, man. Before them rested the coffin uh, with the flag over it of Richard Nixon, and then on the other side of the coffin stood what I consider uh, America's greatest evangelical prophet, Billy Graham, who preached a really marvelous, marvelous sermon. As I sat there and watched the funeral, that uh, image created a metaphor in my mind, a very powerful metaphor as I saw the coffin and Billy Graham. And the metaphor went something like this. It it was that no matter how powerful one is in their life, and certainly Richard Nixon uh, during his tenure as president was the most powerful man of the most powerful country on the face of the earth. That no matter how much power or prestige, no matter how many symbols of success or experiences that you have around us, that one day we will all lie humbled and still with the only words that are being spoken in that moment, the only words really that even matter, become God's words. That's what that meant to me as I watched that. You know, ironically, uh, shortly before or right after Nixon's death, uh, his ninth book is going to be released uh, to the public. And in that book, he tells of a meeting that he had with Mao Zedong, the former premier, the very revered premier of the Republic of China, leading one billion people into that communist movement. And uh, Nixon tells a story of his meeting with Mao in 1976. And Mao had just suffered a very disabling stroke. And Nixon was there on a mission of goodwill. And as he spoke with Mao, he kept stressing to the premier the importance of these two countries continuing to seek peace with one another. And as Nixon went on and on about this importance of peace between America and China and the countries of the rest of the world, it began to show in his face that he was irritated. Uh, He was unable to speak because of the stroke. He had a young lady who served as his interpreter, but he could hardly say anything. And so as Nixon went on, he finally grabbed a scratch pad and wrote out a question on it and gave it to this young lady to read to the president. And this is what it said. He asked of Nixon, 
Is peace your only goal? Now, that became a very important question for Richard Nixon. He said he was stunned by that question because in the years of turbulence and war that our country had gone through, peace had been, of course, the foremost question. But now that peace has come, it has become obvious that peace should not be the only goal. In fact, Nixon's book that you'll see soon to be released in bookstores is entitled Beyond Peace. And in it, he makes the point that peace is not the final goal, nor should it be for any nation. In fact, if peace is our only pursuit, it will ultimately result, Nixon says, in our own demise and doom. America and the rest of the world need some higher purpose if we're going to be called together as a people, if we're going to be called together in purpose, and for us to stay as a country vibrant and healthy as a people. Now I say that because there's an analogy to this little letter of 1 John that we're about to look at here this morning. And we've been working through because if I could summarize in a question this little letter, it would be somewhat like the question Mao asked of Nixon, only a little different. It would be a question that would be a stunning question, and it's a question that needs to be asked of the evangelical church. If we are to be more than just a gathered people, a people seeking our own peace, but an influential people, a people of vibrancy and power. And this is how it would sum up the whole book of 1 John in a question. It would be this. Is knowledge our only goal? Is knowing the Bible our only goal? Is being uh, biblically uh, uh, orthodox our only goal? If you'll remember, John's battle here in this letter is against a group, a group of people called Gnostics. He was fighting a heresy called Gnosticism. And I mention that word because it refers to those so-called Christians who had made an art out of knowing a lot, but who had come up extremely short on living that particular information out in their own lifestyles. To them, Christianity was more of an intellectual exercise than anything else. And last week, I kind of summarized them as being knowledge-only Christians. Now, knowledge, there's nothing wrong with knowledge. And the acquiring of biblical truth is a very important and virtuous pursuit in the Christian life. And I would commend it to anyone in our day to saturate themselves with the truths and principles of the Word of God. The problem in that equation is not the word knowledge. <laughs> Knowledge is good. It's the infection that comes with the word only. They were knowledge-only Christians. People who were long on speculations and contemplations and wanting to argue in religious wranglings that Paul talks about in the second letter of Timothy, but whose lifestyle never demonstrated ethically the truth that they so artfully proclaimed. 1 John, if I could rename, if I could give a title in your Bibles to the epistle of 1 John, if I could rename it, I would rename it Beyond Knowledge. That's what this book is about. It's talking about going beyond knowledge. And if you look on your outlines, you'll see that the section that we're in is a doctrinal section. I've marked it off for you. The doctrines that started back in chapter 2, verse 29, and we've been working through those. And last week, we focused specifically on the doctrine of spiritual authenticity. And there we found that being in a spiritually authentic Christian had nothing to do with just the confession of your mouth. But being an authentic Christian 
had to do much more with your growing capacity to love. Going beyond just a natural love, but a love that began to reach out beyond the borders of self, that began to sacrifice yourself for others, to reconcile relationships that were broken, to move towards your enemies, to embrace them with compassion. That's this growing capacity of love. And out of that capacity, you demonstrate spiritual authenticity. If you look at verse 14, John sums it up quite well. And I'll add a couple of phrases to this verse when he says this. We know that we have passed out of death into life. And if I could add, not because of what we know, but because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death no matter how much he knows. That's what he's saying here. That's the doctrine of spiritual authenticity. Now this morning, if you'll notice on your outline, we have four doctrines that we're going to cover this morning. And I'm going to start with the doctrine of assurance that John gives starting in verses 19 and 20. Now, let me just be sure to clarify, there is the doctrine of the security of the believer where we talk about being justified by Christ in faith alone and in that faith being secure for an eternity that we're in a relationship with Him. That's not what I'm talking about. This is not the security of the believer. He's talking here about the assurance of the believer and there's a difference. Let's start in verse 18. He says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We shall know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and He knows all things. Now, let me stop and just probe on that verse because it's a little awkward in its rendering here. But really, what John is trying to scratch out for us is how we come to the place where we are sure that we have the truth. In other words, how do you know that you're right and other people are wrong? How do you know that you're doing it right, saying it right, acting right? Especially when there comes these haunting moments where your heart begins to build a case against you. And that's what he's talking about here. If you're like me, when I come to places where I'm trying to authenticate myself or feel good about myself, the two most a common avenues I use to feel like I'm of the truth is either through results. You know, I get results with what I do, so I feel like, well, I'm of the truth. Or people recognize me. They, they come and say, man, you're really doing a good job, or that really makes a difference in my life, or whatever. So I use these two gates to affirm myself that I'm doing okay, that I'm probably right, that I've not missed it in some way. The problem is, what happens if you're not getting results? And nobody is recognizing you then how do you know you're right? A number of years ago, I read an um, article in Parade Magazine unlike any I'd ever read on the life of Billy Graham. It was an interview, and he was in Montreat. And I, my grandfather-in-law lived in Montreat, and we've taken a number of summer vacations in Montreat up by Billy Graham's home. And he was out on his porch sharing with this interviewer about the doubt that he felt about the success of his life. Can you imagine that? And as he pondered over his life, he was questioning whether he had done really any good in his whole ministry. Never heard anything like it. Wondering whether he had had any effect, whether he had brought any real change to our world by his ministry, especially in light, as he said, that it seemed to be worse now than ever. That's a great man thinking like that. Now, I think what he's looking for as he talked and reflected, he was looking for the results. They weren't there. And a certain sense of recognition and at that particular period of time, he was being 
criticized. But you know, I felt that way. There have been times in my ministry after I've poured my life, what I think, in heaping tablespoonfuls into a person's life over a number of years. And then after a period of time, they go back to the same lifestyle that I was trying to help rescue them from. You know, you look at the results, and now they're even at odds with me. Now that they've gone back. There's no results. There's no recognition. There's even enmity. You wonder, did I do it right? Do I even have the truth? Do I know what I'm doing here? And you find that in that moment you have the drum beats of doubt where your heart begins to condemn you. You know who has also those kind of feelings in great amounts? Parents. They spend their whole life pouring their lives into their children and they want to do it right and they want to, to, to give as best they can. And, and some of you may be in this place right now where your children have moved away or are, uh, they're in a place where they're at odds with you and all that you've tried to give them, they've cast aside and you wonder to yourself, did I do it right? Did I fail them? Did I miss it? Did I not have the truth from the very beginning? Against those drumbeats, you know what this verse tells us? It tells us not to look at results or recognition. Either of those can mislead us. The assurance found here of the believer is in one word. Look at verse 19. It's in that word, this, by this. And it refers to what he has just said in verse 18. He says, little children, let us not love in word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. And if we love that way, it's by this that we know we are of the truth. That is, we know we're of the truth. We know we did it right. If we loved people in good deeds and in truth. We did tangible acts of kindness and love to make their lives better. And we did it in a way that it was in accordance with the truth of God's Word. We never compromised it. We never tried to take a shortcut around it. But we tried to love them in the way the Bible has prescribed. And sometimes loving people that way is hard. But we've done it that way. And if we know we've done it that way and we've loved them by deed and in truth, then by this, we can have assurance no matter what the particular state we're in right now. That's what I would want to tell Billy Graham. That's what I would want to tell my own heart. You've done it right. You can know that. Not by recognition, not by results, but by these things. And if we've loved that way, then we can know we are of the truth. Now, we don't know what all, how all that's going to turn out. We don't know what all the results are ultimately going to be. But that's the point of the very next verse, he says, because God is greater than our heart and He does know. There are some of you who have loved people, challenged people, have not gotten the results, you're an unknown. But the day will come where you will find that God already knew what was going on and He had you in mind to do that and your results will come later. That's the assurance of the believer. Now notice that John goes on to say that if we have assurance, let's say we're just in a place where we're desiring to do God's will, when we're in that stream of obedience that we should have boldness and confidence in prayer. Look at verses 21 and 22. He says, Beloved, let's say our hearts do not condemn us. Then we have confidence before God that whatever we ask we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. You see, the believer who is desirous of being pleasing to God wants to do His will. There's a certain sense of confidence that he can go boldly to God and ask for things. Now, when we're over here wanting to do our will, there's a certain lack of confidence there. But when we're trying to do His will, like some of you in the common cause adventures you're about to take, you're trying to be obedient to God. 
There's a measure of boldness that needs to come as you pursue God in all of that. It wasn't long ago that I received a letter from a young lady in northern Virginia. Uh, she sent this actually to uh, Dennis Rainey, and, uh, but it involved me because she had read a book that I would written on marriage. If you know anything about northern Virginia, that area, it's a very expensive area to live in. And her and her husband had been struggling over their marriage and how they were going to live out their roles with one another. In that marriage, they both had high-pressured, high-paying jobs, and yet they had very young children. And so they picked up this book that I wrote, and they started reading it, and she goes on to say that at every uh, bedtime, they would read a chapter. And said, sometimes we would read, and we would have discussions. Sometimes we would read, and we would laugh. Sometimes we would read, and we'd cry. A lot of times we would read, and we'd fight. <laughs> but we communicated. And there came a place in our reading of this book and as our thinking about our marriage that there came a burning desire in both of us to have me stay home instead of being in the workplace. But we felt, she says, powerless to do so because of the cost of living in the northern Virginia area. So what do you do? When you feel like God is leading you to do something that you're convinced in His Word is His will. Well, the Scripture here says you come confidently to God and ask. And so that's what the next page says. It says, we started to bring our request before God. And we prayed. Every night we prayed for months. And things begin to happen. I want you to know in nine days, April 29th, I will work my last day outside the home. I make a lot of money. And we are a little scared. But we know God is leading us to do this. And that God now is in charge. My little children will finally have a mom at home where I really matter. Now I read that to you because this is just an example of one person that I think fits this verse of taking something they feel like God is leading them to do and coming boldly to God when there doesn't seem to be any avenue out and seeing God answer their prayers very specifically. Some of you worked on the work day a number of weeks ago, the helping hands. 200 people were here and you were about to go to Central High School or Eastgate and if you can remember on that day it was raining. And I laughed when Jim Allen told me as he was kind of giving the prayer before everybody left, he was asking God for good weather as he heard it even pour even harder outside. But you know, that's doing God's will. So you ask confidently, Lord, give us a break in the weather. Now, if you know what happened that day, and for those who participated, they were really rejoicing because it rained all day all over Little Rock. But you know what? It didn't rain hardly at all at Central High School, and it didn't rain in Eastgate. Coincidence? Or is that just simply God being responsive to people who, as it says here in this verse, are doing the things that are pleasing in His sight. I want you to be assured, if God is leading you to do something, if you can look in His Word and see it, no matter how hard it's raining in your life, you need to come boldly to God and ask for the way of escape, for the way of blessing, for the answered prayer. Because this verse assures us that if we want to do the things that are pleasing in His sight, then whatever we ask, we'll receive. That's the assurance of the believer. He turns to a second doctrine in the last two verses of this chapter, that of abiding in Christ. I want to read it to you. It says, And this is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. And the one who keeps His commandments abides in Him and He in Him. And we know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Now I want you to know there's a very 
clear way of knowing whether you're abiding in Christ. Do you see it there? It's laid out for you, not in some abstract way, but in a very clear way. Three little bullets that tell you whether you're abiding in Christ. Verse 23, we know we're abiding in Christ when we believe in Jesus Christ, when we are loving one another, and when we are keeping His commandments. It's one thing to confess a doctrinal statement that you believe in the indwelling presence of the living Christ, that He's in you, that He wants to live your life, His life rather, through you. But I want you to know here in John's hands-on doctrinal statement, it's another thing entirely to know for certain that I am abiding under the authority of Jesus Christ. And I can know that for certain with three very visible marks. Belief, love, and obedience. This trinity of response to God. That's how I can know He's in me. That's a hands-on doctrinal statement. Now I mention that because from time to time I have people who come to me or I interact with people who tell me that even in spite of some ongoing sin in their life, that they're still doing okay with God. They're still in fellowship with God, that even though they're struggling with a particular issue and even given over to it, they want me to believe that they are in fellowship with God when they're in an ongoing sinful situation. And many times, they have, they have been believers for a while, they have a lot of knowledge, and they begin to repackage all that knowledge just like a Gnostic, in a very convincing fashion to say what they're about to do or are doing is okay. Now I want you to know, over my lifetime as a pastor, the most, the, the, the occasions that I hear most in that regard are either on sexual matters of sexual immorality or around a man or a woman leaving the husband or the wife in an illegitimate divorce. And they're wanting me to believe that they're still okay, that God understands, that He's, that he's seen how bad their situation is, and even though they have no real cause for divorce, they're going to still do it, and God is with them. That's a lie. That, that's a lie. Now, how do I know? How can I stand up here and say it like that? I want you to turn back just a page to 1 John chapter 1. Look at verse 6. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with Him, and yet we walk in darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. Now I want you to know, when I talk to people like that, and they've been some friends of mine like that, they can talk very spiritual. They can have a countenance that looks very spiritual. They can assure me in a number of ways that they're okay, and that God is still with them but it's a lie. Fellowship with God is broken when we do not abide in Christ and we disobey His commandments and we don't love one another. We lie. That's what He wants us to hear here. So who is abiding in Christ? In a world like ours where self-deception comes in heaping bucketfuls among people, you can know for sure who is abiding and who isn't by this. And this in verse 24 refers back to belief in Christ, loving one another, obeying His commandments. Are you abiding in Christ this morning? See, that's not an abstract thought at this point. It's a very hands-on thought. Are you abiding in Jesus Christ by this definition? You know, this week a young man came in to see me and I had met him just once. He made an appointment with me and I'm not even sure why, but he came in to try to justify his lifestyle. And it was 
a life out of control. And he told me he became a Christian when he was seven years old, and we talked for a while, and, but any probing question I would ask, he would get defensive, and he'd kind of snap back at me, and those kind of things. And by the time he left, I thought, you know, I'll probably never see this guy again. But this week he came back. But he came back a different person. Somehow, between the first meeting and all that obstinance and rebellion and this second meeting came submission. Somewhere along the line, he decided that he needed to start trusting Christ and not himself. And as we talked, it was an entirely different occasion. There was openness. I had the freedom to ask him any question, any question about his life, and in particular these areas where at the time he had been so defensive. He was more than willing to expose any part of his soul to me. In fact, he was asking me by the end of the conversation how he practically could go out and please God. Now, you know what you call that? You call that abiding in Christ. That's what you call that. That's a guy who's abiding in Christ. He has all the marks, and I could walk out with assurance that this guy is beginning to abide in Jesus Christ. That's the doctrine. Now, I want you to look at a third doctrine. It's found in chapter 4 as we move into that, and it has to do with false teachers and apostolic authority. In verse 1 he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You know, the Bible is a book that encourages not only belief, but it also cause, uh, encourages unbelief. And here's one of those verses that hold up the virtue of unbelief. Because sometimes unbelief is a mark of maturity. Notice it says in verse 1, Do not believe... Every spirit, actually it's the present tense verb of the word, literally translated, stop believing every spirit. And he's speaking to gullibility. A lot of us have been gullible in our life, haven't we? Because when we came to faith and belief, you know, faith is belief in the unseen. And there are times where we can hear things that we're supposed to believe by faith and we can believe everything we hear. And, and we finally one day wake up <laughs> to the hard truth that there's a fine line in the spiritual kingdom between faith and stupidity. Right? And sometimes, haven't you embraced something that later on you found out that was just stupid? That has nothing to do with real spiritual life. I just made a fool of myself. Well, I want you to know in John's day as in ours, there existed a host, and there exists today a host of religious hucksters who would love to sweep you off your spiritual feet if you're not careful. The key word in verse 1 is the word many. There's a lot of them and there's a partnership of them. If you'll notice in verse 1, there's a partnership. I don't know if you see it, but notice in the first line of verse 1, it says, do not believe every spirit. And then when it gets to the second part, turning on that conjunction, because, it says, because, and you would expect him to say, many spirits have gone out into the world. But he changes from spirits to a human personality. But many false prophets have gone out into the world. You see, there's a partnership in heresy between invisible spiritual forces and human personalities, these human agents that these spiritual beings use to channel their heresies through. Now I want to stop for a moment and just talk about this a little bit, because this involves you and me. This partnership here in verse 1 between spiritual beings and human agents is a doctrine or is a truth that's taught throughout the Bible. It has a lot to do with what you hear and it has a lot to do with you. In fact, the Bible teaches that human personalities all through life are being quietly, 
subtly, sometimes unknowingly, manipulated by spiritual forces to do their bidding. And that's just not for unbelievers. That's for believers. I want you to turn back to 1 Chronicles, and I'll show you an incident in that regard. Now, 1 Chronicles is right after the Kings, so when you hit Kings, just keep going forward. You'll come to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, and it, this is a story in the life of David. Now, David had been given a covenant by God, and God told David that he would number his descendants as the stars in the heaven and the sand on the seashore, and that he would... He needed to believe that and not trust in his own strength. And part of the application of that faith was that David was never to number the people to see how many forces he could marshal because that was trusting in his own strength or see how many horses or how much wealth, but that he was just simply to believe God for his promises. Now with that as a backdrop, I want you to look at 1 Chronicles 21.1. First, the spiritual agent. Then Satan stood up against Israel now the human agent, and moved David to number Israel. This is a spiritual man. Satan moved David to number Israel. Now, I've got to ask the question, do you think David said, Satan's moving me to number Israel? Or do you think David just began to feel uncomfortable and deep in his soul, he said, you need to see how much you've got so that you can be secure. So David said to Joab and to the princes of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan and bring me word that I may know their number. I need to know that. Feel secure. And Joab, who was more discerning and knew the Davidic covenant, said, may the Lord add to His people a hundred times as many as they are. But my Lord the King, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why does my Lord seek this thing? Why does He... Be a cur uh, why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? Now if you go on and read the next rest of the chapter, which we want, this brought on calamity to the nation of Israel. Now I share that with you because I have a principle that you can fill out on your outlines. There's a blank. This principle is extremely important. The source of every teaching, and when I'm talking about teaching now, I'm talking about life-changing political, social, and religious philosophy of all sorts. But the source of every teaching is ultimately found to be in spiritual places. That's in everyone's life. There's a diagram on your outline with three blanks. I'd like you to just write in these words. At the top, write in a spirit. In the middle blank, write in a human agent. It could be a philosopher, it could be a professor, it could be a prophet, it could be a revolutionary. All sorts of teaching. Many have gone out into this world. At the bottom line, write the words academic acceptance. Now let me explain the diagram to you. History thinks only in terms of human agents. If you read it, if you're a historian, you're not going to ever talk, try to talk about the spirit behind the person. History focuses on human agents, those powerful and special personalities that change the world, like Rousseau, whose 18th century philosophy brought on the French Revolution, or Friedrich Nietzsche, whose God is Dead movement changed the religious philosophy of millions, or Karl Marx, or Adolf Hitler. See, we focus on the human agents, and these human agents become very popular philosophers, revolutionaries, or prophets. 
We focus only on the middle blank. And then as these people gain popularity, different people from the academic world begin to accept their philosophy, like Marxism, for instance. And then those philosophies are then pressed down in the ac academic community in the popular mediums of music, or education, or art, or religion, the media, science, and then propagated to the masses as truth, and then the masses respond. And we all think that Marx did that, or Hitler did that, or Nietzsche did that, or Huxley did that, or Darwin did that. But the Bible suggests a spirit did all that. That's what the Bible suggests. That behind those human personalities, indeed behind every human personality, is a spirit being, a spiritual influence, motivating a person's life. In other words, Rousseau's philosophy of the innate goodness of man, and that our human nature is basically good and needs to be uh, 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 liberated from the religious restraints imposed on them that people took and ran as, as the 60s philosophy. That in that moment Rousseau came to those thoughts, let us understand that it was not original with Rousseau. A spirit can teach that. And when Nietzsche influenced millions with his God is dead philosophy, he did so inspired, I believe, from a nudging spiritual force softly in his mind. Or when Adolf Hitler probably heard in his mind, kill the Jews, it came from a faint whisper inside his mind, but it wasn't him saying it. And I want you to know even Jesus Christ, when He lived, when He came and proclaimed the Gospel of God, if you'll notice, if you read the book of Matthew, when He began His ministry, it said the Spirit of God descended upon Him as a dove and began to influence Him and move Him and direct Him. Every person is in some way coerced, manipulated, spoken to, moved in a way that you think it's you. But there are spiritual forces that are involved. They, every teaching ultimately rests in a spiritual place. I want you to look back at, just turn back your Bible to 1 Timothy for just a moment. This is Paul speaking, and he's speaking of days future to them, and he brings these spirits to mind. First of all, the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Paul says, but the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, explicitly says. Now, he's speaking through Paul, and Paul's saying, I'm under the control of the Spirit too, the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is urging me, He's explicitly telling me that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now again, let's stop for a moment. Do you think the world is, is ready to hear a deceitful spirit or a doctrine of a demon? Do you think if I came up to you and said, boy, I've got a great doctrine from a demon, that you'd listen to me? No, you'd think I was nuts. No, that, that, that's the spiritual agent. He's saying there are spiritual deceitful spirits there and doctrines that come from demonic places. But notice how they're delivered, not by spiritual forces. Look at verse 2. But they're delivered by means of the hypocrisy of liars. Teachers who are seared in their own consciences. That's with a branding iron. But I want you to know, they are people who look good, talk good. They are some of the brightest and best 
They can turn words on a dime easily. They can spin tails. They can say things that make people's hair stand up on the back of their neck. They are wonderful as exp in expositing philosophies and teachings that cause the world to want to hear. But deep in their heart, they don't know the difference. They have deceived themselves of good and evil, right and wrong. They have come to a place where they know they're manipulating, they're hypocrites, and they lie. But their goal is power and pleasure. But you don't know that. But you know what they don't know? They don't know that they're simply a medium, a channel for a doctrine that they didn't make up, that somebody made up for them and whispered in their soul. That's why John, back to 1 John 4, says, don't believe every spirit, but you need to test the spirits. And of course, I think I've got your attention down to say, well, how do you test the spirits? Especially in the religious realm, and that's where I want to focus the rest of the message here. John gives two tests in the last five verses. The first is, is that you can know the difference between truth and error in that those who are of the truth confess the divine Lord. That's what's found in verses 2 and 3. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now it is already in the world. Now verse 2, look at verse 2. It's somewhat difficult and awkward in the Greek. I don't really like the translation that's here in my Bible. I want to give you a more literal translation that would read this way. Every spirit that confesses, and it doesn't say that in the Greek, just every spirit that confesses Jesus as Christ come in the flesh is from God. Now notice when I said that, the confession that I just said is not something about which Jesus did. And that's the way it reads in my Bible right here. You know, it's like, it's like a confession like a creed that you would acknowledge that every person or every spirit that confesses, and he confesses a historical event, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Okay, That's not what I think it's saying. It's not giving you to confess an event. It's causing you here to confess a person. Everyone who confesses Jesus as the Christ, the living God, fully God and fully man, incarnate in human flesh, having come from God, that person, that teacher, is from God. You see the difference there? It's the difference between saying, or asking the question, do you believe in Jesus? And you could say, anybody, believer or unbeliever, could say, yeah, I believe Jesus Christ lived. Or turning it around and asking it this way, do you believe in Jesus? See the difference there? Verse 2 is asking the latter proposition. It's a confession in the person and who He really was as God in the flesh. Now you can take that. You can take that test that they must confess to the divine Lord and you can start comparing it to some of the religions around us. For instance, Mormons believe, that Je Mormons believe Jesus to be the natural offspring of Joseph and Mary. Not the incarnate Word and, and uh, Jesus being... Uh, the result of the Holy Spirit in Mary. They failed the test. Christian scientists believe Jesus to be an outstanding man, but not deity. Jehovah Witness see Jesus as God's first created creature, but created and not God. Unitarians see Christ as no more or less divine than any man in this room or woman. Muslims see Jesus as a great prophet like Moses, 
but less than Mohammed the prophet. Buddhists see Jesus as a good teacher, but less than Buddha. The point is, all these religions, and this is what's interesting to me about all the world's religions and cults around us, they all allow for Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? They all allow for Jesus Christ. They all want to get you up close to Jesus. They all want to affirm Him. They all acknowledge Him. And in fact, all of them honor Him. And therein lies the subtlety of deceit. Because they want you to draw up and embrace Him. Just don't embrace Him the way the Bible declares Him. Because the Bible declares Him to be God in the flesh. And in refusing to confess Him as the Bible so clearly presents Him, as God come in the flesh, they fail the test. And it's by this test that you can know truth and error. You can know it for sure. There's a second test. It's found in verses 5 and 6. First, they must confess the divine Lord. And secondly, they must profess the divine Word. Verse 5 says, they are, they are from the world. Therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. That's where these false teachers are. They're very popular. The world loves to hear them, loves to hear them sing, loves to hear them teach. But verse 6 says, we are from God. And he who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. And it's by this that you can know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. When John says, we are of God, who's he referring to? He is obviously speaking of the twelve apostles of which he was one. The twelve apostles, like Paul says in Ephesians 2.20, upon whom the whole church builds its foundation. Those who Jesus Christ personally picked. Those men that Jesus Christ personally commissioned to declare authoritatively the full message of Christianity. Those people to whom God's Spirit gave the power to perform wondrous signs and miracles and wonders. Those men, they're a special breed set apart. We are from God. In fact, if you'll turn over just a page, this is how John begins his letter. It's subtle, but he's, he's showing them to be this select group that have something to offer to the people who read this letter. Look in verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, What was from the beginning from the beginning of eternity, what we, you notice that we? There's only a few. He's not talking about a lot of people, just we apostles have heard, because they were with Jesus. And what we have seen with our eyes, see, they saw Him. And what we beheld with our hands and handled, see, they touched Him. They rubbed shoulders with Him. Concerning Jesus, the Word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness. And we proclaim all this to you. See, you didn't have this. You weren't picked. The eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And out of all that richness and all that really privilege, verse 3, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also that you also may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We're a unique breed. We we apostles, not a scholar who lives 2,000 years later, not a false teacher in the 4th or 5th century, not some new age mystic. We, we have the truth. We are from God. And we have written it down so you can know what we said. The question is, is do you believe it? That's the real question. Do you believe they are of the truth? 
Those who are of the truth believe the Bible. It's the cutting edge of philosophy. It's the cutting edge of sociology. It's the cutting edge of every discipline. It doesn't mean that the Bible has everything in it, but it's the grid through which everything needs to be observed and judged as being true or erroneous. You know, the first attack on an individual, spiritually speaking, is in Genesis 3, where Eve is attacked by a serpent. And it's interesting where he focuses his attack. It's on the reliability of what was then just some of God's words. Not the whole book, but it was a portion of it. His attack was threefold. First, he distorted what God said. He said, God said you can't eat of any tree here. Now that was a distortion. And you will probably recall and somewhere in your Christian life, from time to time, you will hear someone take a biblical statement and blow it way out of proportion. That's a spirit. Secondly, he denies what God directly said. God said, if you eat of one tree, you'll die. In that attack, Satan looked at Eve and said, you'll not die. He denies it. The same way that you will find in your lifetime, people will say, as you say, but the Bible says this and says, that's not right. Uh, that's, that's a wrong interpretation. So-and-so says it differently. Have you read this book? Did you know there were contradictions in the Bible? How can you trust that? See, just outright denial. His third attack was that he created dis distrust for what God said. Because after he finished, he said, you know, let me just tell you straight on, bottom line. If you'll eat this fruit, God's afraid because when you eat it, you'll become just like Him. That means God's holding back on you. The same way that you will hear your friends, your classmates, sometime in your life, do you really believe that? Did you know this is keeping you from life? You've been brainwashed? That real life is over here? You've been following what? I want you to know the whole thrust of spiritual attack on Eve is the same that you will get on yourself. Because the, say, but because the serpent was saying, Eve, when are you going to stop letting God think for you? When are you going to start thinking for yourself? Now I want to speak to those of you who might be students. I want to talk to some of you who maybe are about to go off to college or whatever. You listen to me. You will hear this again. You trust me. You will hear this again from somebody that you probably respect. And they're going to attack you, whether it's a fraternity brother or a friend or a respected professor. They're going to ask you that same question. When are you going to start thinking for yourself? You keep wanting to pass all this stuff through a biblical grid. You've been brainwashed. What, what church did you go to? Who were you listening to? It's amazing. Brainwashed one hour a week on Sunday when most people are sitting there 15, 16, 25 hours in front of a tube. That's programming. This is not programming. But yet they come to believe that and they go, yeah, maybe I ought to start thinking for myself. Yeah, don't, don't let mom and dad, you know, pin you in on that stuff. Get free up. And see, it sounds so good, doesn't it? Think for yourself. Now let me tell you, I am not against people thinking critically. In fact, I would urge it. Think, think. But that's, see, it's not thinking critically that we're being tempted with here. It's something much more subtle. Listen to it. You need to think for yourself. You hear that? It's not thinking. It's that you need to be the one 
that judges what's right or wrong. You need to step up to the judge's bench. You need to be the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-wondrous judge of right and wrong. Not God's Word. Not something that's been around 2,000 years and will be here long after you're gone and will look at you and judge you for everything that you've done because of its wisdom. No, the subtlety in all of this is that you need to become the ultimate authority for you. That's the temptation. And so many people begin to think, but they begin to think out of their own authority, and therein lies the spirit of great error. Today the Bible is assailed by all kinds of philosophies that are going to tempt you. All kinds of modern social movements. The radical feminists will say the Bible is oppressive to women, and they will want to rewrite and reinvent the Bible from a different perspective. The radical homosexual will say the Bible is hurtful and we need to reinterpret it. The religious liberal will say it has great error and he will dismiss it and its authority. Some academicians will see it as fantasy and they will mock it and say anybody who believes that must have left their intellect somewhere back in a jar. But you know what? My greatest fear is that just most Americans don't know it. They just don't know it. They, they don't take the time to read it. They don't, they don't immerse themselves with the rich textures of theology and life that are here. You know, George Barna, the pollster, just did a poll of Americans, and he asked them what they considered the most popular Bible verse in America today. Now, I want you to think, what is the most, don't say it, what's the most popular Bible verse in your mind in America today? Let me interpret here. John 3.16, right? No, that's not what he found out. The most popular Bible verse in America, according to George Barna, is God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> that's right. Benjamin Franklin. Not even a Bible verse, and yet eight out of ten Americans reference that verse. What do you think about this? What do you think about it? If you look back over the last six months of your life, it will bear testimony to what you think about this. Because peppered back through the days and weeks of these last six months, you will have been in this book looking for some answers, trying to solve a problem, trying to read for some encouragement. Or if you were being out with friends and listening to the television and you had the music on, you're listening to a di different source of your theology. That's just reality. Not that those things are wrong, but when they replace this, then you've got a different theology. It's the spirit of error. I want you to know I love this book, and I believe it to be God's very Word, without error, more important to me and living life than food or water. More wisdom in this book than could be gathered with all the philosophers, teachers, and professors in the whole world. Like David said, Thy word has made me smarter than all my teachers and all my counselors. And I want you to know this book will still be here after all the philosophies and religions that I listed are long gone. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. That's the doctrine of truth and error. And if you want a simple, sure way of knowing whether your friends are speaking erroneously 
or your professor or the TV or wherever, you just simply need to ask the question, is what I'm presently hearing as I think about it, is it complementing what the Bible says or is it compromising it or outright contradicting it? It's by this, notice verse 6, that we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Well, this brings us to a close to this section of Scripture, this doctrinal section, but I want to take just a moment, if you would, turn back to chapter 2, and I want to rush you through one last thing because I think this is an important exercise. I want to bring us back to the big picture. Remember I said that this part of the letter was a hands-on doctrinal statement because it's so extremely practical. And its emphasis is not on what you believe. It goes much deeper. It has a tighter grip. It's on what you know. I want you to see it spilled out again in a review. Verse 29, he says, you can know those who are spiritually regenerated, born again. And how can you know? Because verse 29 says that you can know that everyone who practices righteousness that's the person that you can know is born of God. What about the second coming? Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. We know that we shall be like Him at the second coming when we see Him. And how do we know? Well, look at verse 3. We know because everyone who's seeing Him right now, today, with the eyes of faith, believing Him and trusting Him, is right now being changed to be like Him. And if that's the case, if we can see Him just through the eyes of faith and be changed, then we know for sure that when we stand in front of Him, visibly, and seeing Him just as He is, that we'll be like Him. We'll be changed further. Look at verse 10. We can know who's spiritually authentic and who isn't. And how can we know? He says, because those who are authentic will keep God's commandments and, and love one another with a selfless love. And those who don't are not only not authentic, but as he says here, they are obviously the children of the devil. How do we know those? How do we know we are of the truth? How can we know that with assurance? Well, if you remember verse 18 says, we can know it when we love in deed and when we love in a way that falls in the channel of God's truth. There's all kinds of love that spills over into error. But when we love in the channel of truth, we can be assured whether we get results or recognition we can be assured that we are right of the truth. How do we know that we're abiding in Christ? Verse 23 and 24, we know because those who abide in Christ believe in Jesus Christ, love others, and keep His commandments. And then finally, how do we know false teachers from true ones? We know because it says in verses 1 through 6 that the, false, the true ones will confess Jesus Christ personally as God in the flesh. And they will profess the Bible as God's divine word to man and use those as the anchor points of their life. This is a marvelous book, marvelous letter. And if I had to entitle it, <laughs> I would call it Beyond Knowledge. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these rich words. And now as we leave, I pray for my brothers and sisters because I am convinced that there is a Spirit here today touching people in different ways and in different places. There are some parents out there that just needed to hear that their efforts 
were being recognized by the God who knows all things. Comfort them. There are some of us who have been under attack. We've had a friend saying, you know, you're brainwashed by that church. We just needed to hear not only that we weren't brainwashed, but there is reason and truth to all of this and that your word stands firm. Some of us just needed to be reminded of spiritual authenticity, that real love reconciles and reaches out even to our enemies, and that you're calling us to that higher love. Some of us, Lord, just needed to sit and listen to the fact that Christianity is hands-on. It's not a creed. It's not church attendance. It's not some profession of the lips, though it involves all those things in one sense but that Christianity in its boldest and brightest form is a life well lived for Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.